Good morning. First Timothy chapter five. Chapter five. We're going to finish the entire chapter today. If that makes you nervous, it should. No. If you will remember, we will only be doing verses one through sixteen. Went back when we did our teaching over elders. Um, we looped in verses 17 through 25, so uh, we will not have to do that. If you think that we're skipping that because it's controversial, I would say that we are not. We have done those verses. You can go back online and, and pick up, um, I believe it was the last, we did five weeks on elders, and I believe it was the last week that we looped over here and grabbed uh, verses 17 through 25, so we'll just be doing verses 1 through uh, 16 this morning. Let me catch you up. Uh, it's a holiday weekend. Uh, we have a lot of families out today um, and be praying for those families. Um, so um, if you are listening to this online because you were out this Sunday, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the podcast numbers went down. Um, <laughs> Let me catch you back up. So Timothy is um, being instructed by Paul. The Apostle Paul is shaping this young pastor as he pastors his church in Ephesus. He is reminding him to continue to train in godliness. And then last week, he gave him some instructions on how to be an example to others. We said last week that it dawned on me for the first time that the reason Paul made sure Timothy understood that he needed to be an example of what it meant to be a believer is that there would have been no other examples. So it was critical that Timothy live out his faith so that others could imitate that faith just as Timothy had been imitating Paul's faith. Then he reminds him to keep a close watch in verse 16 of chapter 4, to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching, for persisting in this, uh, you will save both yourself and your hearers, meaning make sure that what you preach and what you call people to live is what you're living. Uh, watch your own self. It is easy for pastors to stray. It is easy to proclaim the gospel as a pastor and not live it out outside of Sunday, believe it or not. It's just as easy for us to do that as it is for you to say amen to the gospel being preached and struggle to live it out outside of the church. So we want to make sure that you, I think the battery died, <laughs> that you as believers imitate other people's faith. That's Paul's address to Timothy. And that, I don't need a microphone, by the way, in case you haven't said, but I'm sure they will come up here and change it, but no one's ever told me to please speak up. It's never happened. Type down, yes, speak up, no. Nevertheless, he reminds Timothy to watch himself to make sure that he lives out what he says he believes. And then we find ourselves back in chapter 5, and we will pick up verses 1 through 2. First, uh, actually, we'll just read the whole thing. It'll help set us up a little bit better. Chapter 5, 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. 
honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his, the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a believer. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that they care for those who are truly widows. In the list of most exciting passages to preach on, 1 Timothy 5 does not arrive in that list. Um, because it is an interesting passage dealing with widows, um, and that's going to be strange for us, by and large, in the Western church, uh, growing up in the time period that we have grown up. Uh, we are not necessarily um, very familiar with the church taking care of its own. And so that's why it's going to take a little bit of work for us to get there. But what I want to first do is tackle verses 1 and 2. We will spend very little time on that because there's basically 13 verses that Paul writes to Timothy regarding widows. We're going to spend the majority of time on what Paul spent the majority of time on. But I do want to pick up verses 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul, knowing that Timothy is young, he gives him an instruction that is good for all of us to hear, and that is how you handle correcting someone is not a one-size-fits-all approach. This was important information to pass to Timothy. Remember, Timothy's young, and he wants to make sure that Timothy handles those who are older more carefully than those who are his age. And he wants to make sure that how he handles men is different than how he handles women. Now, that seems to go against what we might feel in our minds. One size fits all should work. If someone is difficult or is struggling with sin or is causing a problem, you call them all out equally. And I would just tell you, you've never pastored. Because <laughs> that does not work well. How I might address Ben, I see Ben, that's the only reason I bring him up. If Ben was doing something sinful or that I thought was unwise, I might take Ben to lunch 
And on the way to the booth, I might hit him in the back of the head <laughs> and say, you big dummy. He might hit back, but nevertheless. The way I would handle Ben, because of my relationship with him and our age, even though I'm much older than him, believe it or not, the reality is, the way he and I are and our personalities are, I could confront him that way. But if I were to go to Wayne McKay and hit him in the back of the head on the way to the booth, that would go poorly. <laughs> There's a difference in how you handle people within the church. And Paul makes sure that Timothy understands the way that you confront an older brother, an old man, is to confront him as you would a father, with great respect, very carefully. You need to correct him, yes, but you need to do so carefully. How you handle younger men, you treat them like brothers. That's why you hit them in the back of the head on the way to the booth. You treat them differently than you would an older man. And then when it comes to older women, Paul tells Timothy, treat older women in the area of having to rebuke them or meaning. It means to confront with sin or to confront with any difficult thing they're causing for the church. He says to deal with these older women as mothers. Doesn't mean you don't confront. Doesn't mean you don't instruct. It just means that you are careful with how you do so. And then with younger women as sisters in all purity. Men must address women carefully and differently than they address men. Not long after I became a pastor, I was sitting in my office with my first pastor, and I was convinced that now that I was a pastor, the gospel would be proclaimed throughout all the world, and all would come to know the saving faith of Christ because I was now in the big chair. And I had always thought if I could get all the other people out of the big chair and I could get in the big chair, things would go much more smoothly. Um, that's called being stupid and not having much experience. Not long after acquiring the big chair, we decided to have a church-wide remodel. Our music minister at the time uh, was single, but older, uh, and uh, it was not long into the day before uh, some ladies came storming into my office. Uh, they had been in the sanctuary discussing paint colors. That's fun. <laughs> and a disagreement arose among the ladies. And the first place they decided to march was to the pastor's office, where I had been uh, sent to by the men because I was attempting to use tools. Uh, they figured out that I knew nothing about that and told me to go study for next week's sermon. Um, these ladies came in, one of them was crying, and I said, okay, what, what's going on? And she's like, well, we were in there, and we were having this disagreement, blah, blah, blah. And then we turned to the music minister, and he was trying to give us some instruction. And he finally looked at the lady, <laughs> and he said, you women always want to know why I'm single. Well, here you are, right here, and we are offended. Well... I chuckled a little bit, and she didn't think that I should chuckle. So here's the reality. The way you address people within the church must be handled with care. And when you try to correct somebody in the church from doing something 
wrong or something that even that you think is unwise, you should be careful in doing so. How many of y'all have ever gone to do something out of a good reason and then only backfire on you? You got to be careful. You have to be careful. If need be, get wisdom from others. But nevertheless, be careful. And then 3 through 16 is a bit unusual for us, as I said. Um, and so we need a short lesson from history from the Old Testament about widows. Widow, uh, in the biblical sense, is someone whose husband has died and that they have no one left in their family to take care of them. Women, as you might know, were in ancient times not held necessarily in high esteem. Uh, they were looked at as property. Somebody to have children with, hopefully produce sons to carry on the family line. And if you were unable to have children and your husband died, then you were left very vulnerable in a society that did not much care for you because you, based upon many societies, served no purpose to them. However, God has always cared for those who are weaker and vulnerable. And the poor among you, the sojourner, those who would travel with the Israelites but were not Israelites, uh, and the widows. And so he made sure that the Israelites handled widows differently. In fact, the Bible has 102 references to widows. And, and many of those have to do with how you handle them. So we're going to read a lot of scripture. It'll be on the screen. You can read it with me. We're going to read a lot, and then I'll make some application uh, toward the end. But I want you to get a good framework for this. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17 through 18, we have this. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29, he says this, At the end of every three years you shall bring out, out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are, with, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands that you do. And these types of commands were repeated several more times in Deuteronomy 16, twice. But in Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 through 22, it says this. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It will be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So the leftover food that was left that they didn't get all of, they were required to leave... And one of the people they were required to leave it for was widows. In Deuteronomy 26, it says this, 12 through 13. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of giving. Um, I left that. I lost that for a second. 
which is a year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so they may eat within your towns and be filled. And then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all the commandments that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commands, nor have I forgotten them. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, it says, Curse be anyone who perverts the justice to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people said, Amen. And in Exodus 22, 22 through 24, it says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. That's in the Bible. <laughs> and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In Psalm 85, 4 through 5, it says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. In Mark chapter 7, 8 through 13, you leave, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a very fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that was a way for them to say, this has been given God, then you are no longer permitted permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things do you, you do. So if your mother or father needed money, and you had money, and you didn't want to give it to them, you could say, Corbin, it's holy to God. Here was the kick about this, this Jewish custom, this tradition that they held out as law, which was a violation of the commandment. You could actually, after you ordered Corbin and said, I don't have to give it to my parents anymore, they would say, all right, you don't have to give it to help your mom and dad anymore. You could then withdraw Corbin, and you could keep it for yourself. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, which is why, in my argument, and if you were with us in our Mark study, why I believe, as others, although we are a minority for sure in this teaching, in fact, the only um, well-known theologian who is in the same camp as I would be John MacArthur. Uh, but that is why I believe Mark 12 and the widow giving her last penny is not a teaching, is not a teaching over giving. It's not. Let's read Mark 12, 38 through 44. It says this, And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour, devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's different takes on this passage, but what we do know is in some way, uh, either through a legal way with lawyers or whatever, these Pharisees were taking these widows' property, and for them to say, well, I need help, they would say, well, give us all of your property, and then we'll take care of you, and they were devouring the widows' property, ripping them off, in other words. And that's why verse 41 is the immediate following story. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a what kind of widow? A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, and has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. Now here's what the church does with that. Because we're churches. And what do we want to make sure you give? Money. There's the greedy side, historically, of the church. That didn't happen in the 20th century. That's been happening in a long time. And so here, you need to give. Here's the sermon. You need to give like the widow. Give all you have. Have that kind of heart. Because Jesus never identifies this as a pattern of giving. He never tells the disciples, and so you do likewise. Instead, what Jesus is trying to show the disciples is in your corrupt, or he's showing the disciples and the Pharisees, in this corrupt system you have of giving, the widow who you should be taking care of because I've commanded it all through the Bible. She should not be poor. She should not be giving all she has to live on because when she gives those two pennies in that corrupt system, it says that that's all she had. Most commentators, even in those who believe that it's giving, admits that this widow probably died afterwards. In the midst of the very religious leaders who were commanded to take care of her. This is Jesus exposing the corrupt system of the Pharisees. Saying, even this widow, everyone else gave out of abundance. Poor widow gave up poverty. You know why? Because those who had abundance did not help the one who had poverty. That is why Jesus is upset, I believe, in this scene. It's not a pattern of forgiving. Instead, it shows a pattern of sin by the Jewish religious leaders. Because they didn't care about the widow. What they cared about was getting more stuff. And we are commanded to take care of the widow. James 1.27 puts it this way. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. If you just stop there and I said, hey, I want you to tell me, what do you think religion that is pure and undefiled before God is? We would have lots of answers throughout the church. I bet it would not be to visit orphans and to take care of widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled is to care for orphans and widows. Now, I get it. We live in a different time, and I get that, and I need to address that. We have a period of time in our culture and in our country that we don't really have orphans in the same sense that they had in the Bible. This is a difficult country. I am not at all saying that there are not extremely poverty-stricken people in our country. I do know that. But it ought not to be that case, because this is a difficult country to starve to death in. There are more government programs than we can possibly imagine to come along and help. But as another pastor I was talking to just recently about this passage, he said, more often than not, the church thinks their job is to direct people to these programs. 
instead of asking the church to do what it's called to do. Churches like us, we are full of abundance. No matter what your budget says, no matter how overdrawn your account might be this morning, the reality is we spend an exorbitant amount of money on things that are frivolous. And yet there are people among us who struggle. And our goal is to try to get them assistance. When the assistance should be coming, I believe, right here from the people. How sad is it that we send people to the government to take care of them and then claim our God is powerful? Sad. So what do we do with this text? Well, clearly there seem to be some qualifications to receive assistance. Scholars have deferred for quite some time on whether there was an actually an official order of widows in Paul's time. We do know that in a 4th century work called the Apostolic Constitutions that there came to be an official order of widows and these widows would be uh, have to meet these qualifications and they would be brought into the church and be taken care of and those widows would then work in the church in some form of ministry and the church would make sure uh, they were taken care of. But there's debate over that. Uh, and I would tell you, once again, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, I don't know exactly, but I do know there was qualifications in order to, to receive church assistance. We saw it in 9 through 16. Uh, they had to be not less than 60 years old. They had to be the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted to every good work. Let me, let me sum it up for you. They had to be believers who lived out their faith. Godly women. But then, Paul makes sure Timothy understands that if any of these widows have family, that those family members should be taking care of that widow. And, and here's how strong Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, says this. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's in the Bible. To turn a blind eye to the widows or any family member who is in need of help, and we'll get this in the context of believers, to turn a blind eye to those believers in your family who need assistance is to not be a person of faith. In fact, it is to be someone worse than an unbeliever. There is a responsibility upon me and my wife to take care of my mom and dad. And that means if my mom and dad get to a point in life where they need me to take care of them, then I am to come along and, and if I need to decrease my lifestyle to assist my parents, and that is gospel. That is to live out what I say I believe. And I am not opposed to nursing homes. I have worked in my field in audiology. I work in many, many nursing homes in my lifetime, and I'm not opposed to them. I fully recognize that there are parents who, because of very difficult medical problems, cannot be taken care of at home. 
But it was awful to visit with men and women in these nursing facilities and in my conducting and working with them in my business, they would say something to the effect of, I'd say, how many kids do you have? It's like three or four. It's like they live around here. Oh, they live in Dallas. Oh, well, good. They see you all the time. Actually, I haven't seen them in months. I would call some of these families and say, they need a set of hearing aids. The doctor asked me to come. They need a set of hearing aids, and there was plenty of money. But the kids would say, you know what? I think we'll pass on that. You know why they passed? Because even though it was their parents' money, they knew it was going to be their money soon. That's an atrocity in this country. The way we treat senior adults is despicable. To park them in a facility and to ignore them and wait for them to die is anti-gospel. We as believers should be coming alongside these people and helping them. The Bible would say that clearly. The principle of the church, taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves, runs to the DNA of Scripture. But I would say, here's the controversial part of the day. I believe that begins first and utmost with believers. I do not believe that the first place that our money and resources should be spent is on unbelievers. Instead, it should be spent on believers. That's what you see here in First Timothy chapter 5. Now, I'm not saying... Some of you are like, well, this sounds bad. I'm not saying you do not help unbelievers. I'm saying that we should be helping believers first. It should be begin, it should begin there with believers. We see this in Acts chapter 2, 44 through 45. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I hear the argument. Is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? In other words, is that describing how the church works or is that prescriptive meaning the church should work this way? I would say, why can't it just be both? Why can it not be describing how the church should work? Makes sense to me. I mean, is there something bad that would happen if we started living this way as believers? People say it sounds like socialism. It's not socialism. There's nobody being forced to do it. People are doing it out of their own heart's desire for people. First John 3, 11 through 8, which you heard through 18, which you heard in our elder reading. It said this. This we know we love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Speaking to believers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. When all has been said and done, more has been said than ever done. Let's don't love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that the widows who were believers... That Paul would instruct Timothy, make sure the church takes care of them. Make sure those who have families take 
care of them. This is a big deal, and I believe it is a gospel issue. I believe it is a missional issue, and we see that in John 13, 34 through 35. Right before Jesus is going to the garden, right before he's going to be arrested, right before he's going to be crucified and the disciples are going to be scattered, Jesus tells them this. Listen, disciples, I know something that is about to happen. Everything is about to be turned upside down for you. So I'm going to give you a new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And here's why. By this, the way that we love one another, the way that we sacrifice for one another, the way that we never let someone else struggle through life where we go and have our abundance, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the greatest ways we draw distinctions among believers from the world is that we help other believers. We help them. We come alongside them. The Bible clearly teaches that charity and assistance begins within the Christian community. And by the way, I know I'm out of time, but I'm fired up, so you're in trouble. This is why biblical church discipline doesn't work as well as it should anymore. You come into a local body of believers, and you do things you shouldn't, and the church confronts you, you know what happens in the modern-day Western church? They go down the street, and they join another church, and nobody cares, because they're just trying to get butts and pews, butts and seats, that's all they care about. In this biblical time, if you were excluded from the church, and you were a widow, you know what that meant? You starved. It was a big deal because the church was your safety net. It wasn't welfare. It was the church. And so when you sin and the church confronted you and you said, I will live the way I want to, then the church would say, well, you will live outside this community. And the goal was always restoration because the thought process was if you leave the body of believers and there's no more protection and there's no more community and there's no more accountability, then you are left alone. And you would be fearful. And God would use that situation to cause you to repent, to move back among the believers. When there was a famine in the land, when there was a struggle, and people would say, how come those people have food? They would say, well, those people are Christians. And they share everything they have. Well, I might want to be a Christian. It's a, it's a missional idea. That was free. <laughs> That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.10, we're almost done, don't panic. But that's why he says, and people, I know that in us we're still, some of you may be still struggling with the concept that charity always begins in the house of God first. I'm telling you, it's a biblical principle. All the way through the Bible. But just in case you think I'm lying, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Yes, that is the commandment. Especially to those who are of the household May we never give money to drill a well somewhere where our own people thirst. 
It begins here. You're going to make sovereign life a different kind of church in a city littered with churches? Be a person who knows the person next to you. And when you hear they're struggling, you don't need to come to the elders and say, hey, I hear Bob and Cindy are struggling. Gosh, I hope we don't have Bob and Cindy here today. (laughs) That would be awkward. I hear Bob and Cindy are struggling financially. And they need some help. Instead, out of your abundance, once you hand them some money, you say, I don't have an abundance. Oh, folks, we have abundance. We are littered with abundance. Most of us after this service will go and eat rest- at restaurants that will cost us $30 and $40. Can you imagine $30 or $40 times five or six families given to one family, how that could help them out of a tremendous bind they're in? Let me tell you, when a church comes alongside and begins to help people who are believers, not, not helping people in order to hopefully get them to come to become believers, that doesn't work well. I'll just tell you. Let me just tell you. Go to the rescue mission. Look at the numbers. Not, not knocking them, just saying it's not the most effective way. But if you help believers within your church when they struggle with whatever they need, that's a life changing church. Now listen to old people in my business talk about old churches. They almost always begin to tell stories like that. I remember when we didn't have this or that, and our Sunday school class took up this and gave us that. And those people speak, they speak of those churches like their own families. Because that is what we are. Here's the reality for us. I've said it before. Here's where we are, believers. If we were to go buy a brand new refrigerator for our house, and our other one was working, but we wanted the brand new one, what would we do with the old one? The one that we didn't want anymore? We would try to find somebody in the church who needed a refrigerator. We would never keep the old one and give somebody else the new one. And that's a problem. Let them have the old one. I want the best one. That's anti-bible. I'll let it ruin someone's giving plans. <laughs> I'll still take cars. <laughs> People say, well, how do you how do you get to a place where you will sell your property to help those who are poor? How, how do you get your heart there? How, how do you how do you get to that place? How do you get to a place where you would buy a new refrigerator and decide to give that to the family need while you keep your old one for another year or two until you can buy another one for yourself? How do you get there, Jason? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That Jesus left everything for me. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. And he came to rescue me. It's the gospel. And you may be saying, well, what is the gospel? I'm so glad you asked. Here's the gospel. You were born into sin and full rebellion to God. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sinned perfectly on your own. In fact, you're better at it today than when you were when you were first born. And even in your sin, 
And he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place. For Jesus would suffer the punishment that you richly deserved. That Jesus would take your sin and give you his righteousness is the gospel. And people say, well, how do I get that? You repent and you believe. You repent and you believe. You recognize that you need a Savior. You repent that you are a sinner, that you repent of your own way of trying to rescue yourself, and you say, I look to Jesus and need Jesus. And Jesus will rescue you. You don't have to say a prayer with magic words. You just repent and believe. And people say, well, how do you know you become a believer? Because your life will never be the same again. And one of the ways is you'll take care of your parents. You'll see other believers in need and you'll take care of them long before you buy your next big screen. That's gospel-centered church. Everyone's trying to do new things in the church today. I got a new one for you. Why don't we do what they used to do? Let's see if that works. Let's be these kind of people who help our own who would never let a widow go unprotected. I haven't spoken to the elders about this, but I'm clear one of those is Don Lucas, so don't call him, he's on vacation. But I think that even in our small church, we should have a list of widows. And even though they may be perfectly taken care of, for us to, as a church, constantly check on them and just make sure of the calling from here in Scripture, and I think that would do you well as a member, too, to make sure you know who our widows are and to check on them. Well, there's that passage. Different, isn't it? He's going to come and sing for us. I know I'm over time. You've had a holiday weekend. You've had a break already. So I took you out a little longer today in the water. Um, I hope you'll take this to heart. You'll be more sensitive to those around you who are in need. And if you ever don't completely know, feel free to always come to the elders and say, I don't know if you are aware of this but how can we best help this situation? I can assure you we will not ignore you. As a church, we want to be different. We want to be different. Let's pray. God, may we be people who will lay down everything for our brothers and sisters. God, may we be people in this church that others would look and say, those people love each other. And in doing that, Lord, may your son be lifted high. And may people's interest be piqued about a group of people who sacrificed one another because of their love for you. Do that among us, I ask. In your name we pray. Amen.